We're in a series in the letters to the Thessalonians, so we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll also be on the screen if you just want to look up there. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that this word is living and active, that it speaks to us because it bears your authority. And Father, I pray that you would help me to speak rightly, to speak these words correctly, and that anything that is not of you would fall away. God, we pray that our hearts would come more and more alive under your direction and care as we grow in the image and likeness of Jesus. Amen. Uh, this, this letter, as we've talked about before, is, uh, is full of Paul's joy over this uh, thriving, active church in this very important region of uh, what is here, Macedonia, for us is modern-day Greece. And uh, this is sort of one of the earliest incursions into Europe of the gospel. And Paul is writing from a different city to sort of check back on them and to respond to word that he's received from Timothy, his fellow worker. And here he's, we can hear him referring back to teaching that he gave them when he was in person with them. And in this section, Uh, of central focus is the question of sexual conduct, sexual ethics, which we know uh, was something that Paul and the rest of the early church have to come back to multiple times with early churches. Um, I don't know, maybe this may be surprising, but to some people, sex is important. Um, We live in a profoundly sex-focused time, and it can feel like we're the first ones to ever be like this. It's kind of the narrative in sort of Western European progressive culture, like we've finally gotten to here, but in many ways we are behind Mediterranean culture. In the ancient Mediterranean world, uh, sexuality was 
a central figure of social life. And they were, you may want to call it, liberated to a degree that we're probably not comfortable with even in our time and place. And so the Christians come and they start teaching this very, in their view, restrictive and shocking sexual ethic that is not natural for them. This is not something they hear from Christian teachers is like, this is great. This makes sense. In a lot of ways, they hear what is being taught to them, and they have to be reminded again and again. That's why Paul says, you already heard this teaching. And I'm reminding you probably, because Timothy has said, you probably need to remind them about this. And so Paul goes back over what he has already taught them. We know that the the early church has sent a directive to all non-Jewish Christians that says you don't have to become Jewish to follow the Jewish Messiah. You don't have to become an Israelite to fall into the plan of Israel's God. However, one of the things you do have to do is to refrain from sexual immorality. So this word is going out to everyone in this burgeoning Christian family. And Paul reminds them that you are to refrain from all sexual immorality. The view here of what sexual immorality is is entirely defined by what they know comes from the Old Testament law. Paul is writing as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he describes himself, as an explicator of the Old Testament, of Torah. And he is defining this not just from the Old Testament, but then throughout the New Testament in the very, very restrictive language of sexual conduct being permissible for a man married to a woman, and that is it. And in Greek culture, that is a real restriction of the options. If you are a man in Greek culture, you have lots of sexual options, even if you are married. Your wife kind of runs the household and produces heirs for you. You may have a slave or two, and they are considered sexually available to you. If you would like, it's relatively acceptable to have a mistress for your own needs, sexual or otherwise. And if you're just kind of having a different kind of day, sure, go visit a prostitute, no problem. These things are all on the table And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. There is one context for sexual behavior. It's between a married man and woman. And this is hard to hear if you're a Thessalonian. And it's hard to hear if you live here. For our own reasons, we hear this kind of instruction, we hear these kind of commands, and we have been discipled by our culture to have a number of rejections of this teaching. We live in a time and a place where sexual identity is a primary, if not the central defining factor of your identity as a person. You are your sexual attraction. 
And that happens across a spectrums, spectrum of attractions. So that in our time and place, if we hear somebody attempting to what sounds like control somebody else's sexual behavior, that is a restriction of somebody's personhood and is itself a form of oppression and slavery, which makes a ton of sense if that is indeed true, that who you are is your sexual desire. But there is a complex of issues between that perspective and the perspective of the Bible. First and foremost is we do not believe or we ought not to believe that your sexual desire is sufficient. It's not strong enough. It's not a thick enough column to bear the weight of what your identity is supposed to be. Your sexuality is important. It's unavoidably true, both in our own experience and in the context of the scriptures. Your sexuality is important. It's an ingredient to your experience and identity. But it is not fundamentally who you are. Your identity instead is ordered around a different idea. You are a creature made in the image of God. That is who you are, no matter the spectrum of your attractions and your desires. Fundamentally, you were meant to experience this reality. You are a creature who bears the image of God. And we, if you're like me, kind of sort of bow up at that language of creature. I am comfortable at calling dogs creatures. I am comfortable calling whatever thing is living in the pond outside of my house that my children are catching creatures. I am not comfortable putting myself in that same category. Now hear me, you are not a dog or salamander or lizard or whatever those things are. You're not equal to. But like those things, you are made. You are under the direction of a creator. Now, human beings are a special kind of creature that is different from any other kind of creature. You bear the image and likeness of the one who made everything. And that is both tied into the structure of your personhood and what you are called to do in the world. You are a creature, but you are not like any other creature. Now also, we have real problems with the understanding of what this thing is about control and freedom. In our world, freedom is defined as the ability to make all the choices for yourself. So the constraining of options, the elimination of options, especially from somebody else, naturally feels like a form of oppression. But Christians, under the framework of understanding that we are creatures 
say that we are obligated, one, and two, made for the direction of the creator. So the creator has the right to constrain you, to remove the options available to you. But not only does he have the right, he in his goodness as the creator actually knows what you were made for. So that when he constrains your options, when he removes some of your apparent freedom, he is doing good to you. He is providing for you a way of life that is marked out for flourishing, which you and I are often unable to identify for ourselves. See, we lose sight of our creatureliness and we say, I know when I am flourishing. I know when I am living the good life. And the truth is, you do sometimes. And sometimes you're just really, really bad at it. And if you have children, you know this. Right? If you don't have children, but you know people who do, you definitely know this because you have to watch the conflict between those people and it's loud and it's noisy. Children will say, I know it is good for me. It is a five-pound bag of sugar and a spoon. I will exercise my freedom to live my very best life. And parents say, you're a fool. You are not doing that. I will not give you this thing that you demand, that you desire quite so naturally, because... I want you to actually flourish. And because there's a right ordering of relationship there and indeed power, parents can give the gift of a no to their children. Now, when we grow up, we think we have reached the top of the chain. We have ascended the, the top of the ladder and now... Nobody gets to tell me no, and I truly and rightfully understand what is flourishing. You are a giant baby. Not just you, me. Now, this feels easy to say uh, if you're talking about bags of sugar. When we're talking about the intimate relations of bodies and hearts, it is not nearly so clean. It is difficult. It is painful. And if you've never experienced the pain of that no, you are, I would say, in the minority. Some of you will experience the pain of these constraints to greater degrees than others. Some of you will do it quietly and in unseen ways. And what makes this more complicated or more difficult 
is because the church has taken portions of this teaching and at times mixed it with its own weird hang-ups. So at various times it's felt like the church has said, sex generally is gross. It's bad. You can read the church fathers. You can read people from our own Reformed tradition. And it, they waver, toggling between things that sound good and also things that are just like, dude, what, what, are you, what is your hang-up here? Like, why are you like this? And so then it becomes like, maybe this is not the teaching of the Creator. Maybe this is the teaching of people who are uncomfortable with their own bodies and want to control others. That is a narrative we are primed to believe. And Paul here is speaking directly to this objection and is saying, This teaching is not from anybody but the Lord. At the center of Christian sexual ethics is the ability to recognize the Creator for who He is as the Lord of heaven and earth who has presented Himself to you as the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus. And if you can't start there, then none of the sexual ethics that Paul is teaching makes any sense at all. It is not something that I can, I can get people on board with, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. But only Jesus can tell you, if you even have lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. And for you to hear that and think, that is good instruction. It is only when you see the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus that this kind of life makes any kind of sense at all. Make no mistake, there is pain in the obedience in this area Paul says what you have to demonstrate is control. Now notice he's not saying I'm controlling you, right? This is, not, this is not Paul stepping in and deciding to be some creepy weirdo trying to control other people's behavior, which is sort of our phobia. This is what he's saying. You have to control yourself under the control of God. And the thing that you're fighting against is your natural passions, is what he describes. There is a description of war within yourself as you live as a sexual creature underneath the direction of the Creator God. There is a kind of rending here that we should be able to freely confess out loud into one another, this is really difficult. It is really difficult for Christians who are in a romantic relationship, who are not married, to not have sex with each other. It should be 
easy for us to confess that that is the truth because it's the language that Paul gives to us of being at war with the passions of our own bodies. Christian community should be a place where this stuff is not hidden away in shame. But instead, we should all be able to freely acknowledge I am struggling to be in control of my passions like I am commanded to by, by God. I feel like there is a war within myself because the rest of us are meant to come around one another and say, your experience is normal. But instead, what we often do, using the language of the scriptures, we conspire with voices of shame. And we say we, we best hide, best go into the dark, so that no one sees who or what I really am. That is a prison made to destroy you. It will not result in your freedom. It will result in your death. Paul provides for us a sort of counterexample for what is available to all of God's people. Because hear me, that narrow window for sexual behavior excludes people. There are people who want to be married, and they are not. They have been divorced against their own will. They've been unable to find a spouse. They are lonely. They feel that because of the nature of their attractions, they will never be able to be married like that. The vision here for Christian life is not that every single Christian will end up married with kids. If you are single here, God is not like saying part of your spiritual maturity here that we're moving you towards, one day you're going to get to this point and you'll finally be married and have children. Some of you will live permanently outside this narrow, restrictive window of sexual life. And so you will ask the question, but what about me? Which is a fair and good question. And that's why Paul quite naturally moves into a discussion of love amongst the Christian community. He commands the people what he says they don't need to be recommanded, that they've already been taught by the Holy Spirit. You and I are called to love one another. The word Paul uses to describe that is a word that in his culture and time is only reserved for blood siblings. And Paul expands it, stretches it outwards, and said, that's the kind of love that you should have for one another. You ought to, all people are included. All Christians are included or ought to be included in this kind of healthy Christian community that this alternative kind of siblinghood is extended amongst us all. Love one another. 
It is not ancillary. It is not a nice accessory. The Christian community is ought to be marked by love for one another. It is a command from Jesus. It is repeated by the Apostle Paul, by the Apostle John, again and again, that you will be known, you will be marked, Christian communities, by this love for one another. Not theoretical love, real, tangible, demonstrable love. God does not just take away, he does not just remove your absolute sexual freedom and give you nothing. He limits your options as a creature and he supplies you with something else. So that all Christians are meant to live in deep, loving community, friendship, siblinghood for all of God's people. And it becomes a community then which you can live in as a home. So that if you feel like this window of, of Christian marriage, I don't know if I'll ever live in it or live in it again, you do not live homeless. You live in the household of God. That does not wipe away all of your pain and all of your longing but it puts you in the context of your healing so that you would not be alone. So the thing that God said about Adam in Genesis 2 would not be said of you. It is not good for man to be alone. That divine observation is binding even for you if you will live a life of singleness before Jesus, that you would not also be alone. He paints this picture of life within this household that is not marked by, by need, dependence on external agencies. Live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders be dependent on no one. God gives people the goodness of the labor of their hands as a reminder that they are not only what the world has defined them by and what they ought to be, but he expands out the possibilities of who you are so that you would be a good maker, a good laborer, and the work of your hands, too, ought to be blessed. The household of God is a place where all of who you are is meant to be able to come and find its rest. That kind of place can bear the weight of who you are meant to be as a person. If you are here today and you are hearing again this news that is challenging and restrictive, frankly offensive to who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what you'd like to do, you find yourself in good community. You, you are not alone. You are in the company of all Christians ever. And certainly what you hear is God beckoning you. What Paul says again and again is that God calls you to holiness. 
We believe that you were made to find your happiness out of the place of that holiness. And any alternative happiness that you might pursue that moves you away from holiness is actually itself slavery. And so if you are here today and you've said, look, I've been living a happy life. I've been good. Thank you very much. But suddenly I realize that I have found myself far from what a holy God who knows what holiness is has defined for me his creature. The response to that news is not despair. It is not shame. I and no one ever will be able to sufficiently guilt you or arm twist you into right behavior. You can try for a long time, but it will not work because God has wanted you to find your happiness in him. And if today you are weighted down by the reality of so many of your choices and longings, You have to see Jesus. If if you are saying, I am an unholy person, and I feel it this morning, you are the kind of person that Jesus loves. The only kind of person that Jesus made his friends We're unholy people. And if you have sat for a long time, and in this particular area, you feel like a superhero, like a champion, and you say, I'm good, I've done good, I am good, you better be real, real careful. Because that can be poison both for you inwardly and for you outwardly how you treat other people. And the truth is for you, the same as for your brother and sister who feels weighted down by sin and despair, you better look at Jesus. The only people he came to heal are the people who knew they needed healing. And if you are caught today, that's how you feel, caught under the weight of sin. Do not despair. The Lord Jesus loves you. He loves you specifically, fervently, wholeheartedly. And you, friend, were made for his home. He has made for you a place. Just as he told his own disciples, I will go and prepare a place for you. It is here in the household of God. And you maybe have been wronged and shunned and shamed and cast aside by people who bear his name. But I have good news. Jesus is way better than his people. That has always been true and always will remain true. But he will bring you into his household.
and put his love on your head forever. Come see Jesus with all the things that are at war within your soul. And as long as you are in the battle, as long as you are caught in the wars, he will be your peace until you see him face to face and you receive the fullness of your healing forever. Come see Jesus. He is that good for you too. Let me pray for us. Father, In some ways, we are unsurprised that the word of God would be foreign and strange to us, mere creatures. And in other ways, we feel we're really good at deciding lots of things. And so this feels like an invasion. It feels invasive. And Father, I pray that your word will find its home in our hearts. God, I pray that anybody here who is burdened and weighed down by by terrible choices, by things that they didn't choose, things that uh, have been done to them, God, I pray that they will find that in you is mercy and renewal and healing, that you are faithful and true. That is your name. And you love fickle and broken-hearted people. And Father, I pray that this place would be marked with the kind of sibling love under the direction of our Father God that is reflective of the good inheritance that you give to all your people. God, I pray that this would be a place where shame goes to die that holiness blossoms into life for the flourishing of your people's happiness and well-being under your care. Lord Jesus, our hearts are often confused. We're often submitting to this kind of instruction with tenderness and wounds and a limp. But you are like no one we've ever seen. God, I pray that our eyes would be fixed on you. That our hearts would be healed by you. And that our community would come to look more and more like you. That your people would be whole and healed. And this valley would be transformed by your kingship. We love you, Jesus, and we're grateful for the love that you have for your people, your faithful, covenanted love. May your name be praised. Amen.